90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? I am exhausted and happy. <laughs> yeah, I hear like this jet engine air conditioner in the background on my end right now. Yeah, uh, yeah it's um, it's an impossible thing. They have the hotel um, hotel temperature locked down. I can't do anything about it. So uh, <laughs> it was this or the conference. And um, uh, if people were listening last week, they know I'm in Denver at the Geological Society of America conference, who is also sharing a building with a pot growing convention so <laughs> i thought the hotel was the better idea to come to <laughs> yeah that's a fascinating mix <laughs> it was extremely interesting <laughs> <laughs> so yeah um it's been a very tiring week but i'm super excited i won some stuff i win stuff every year at gsa it's the coolest <laughs> really like what, what do you win so gsa next year is in seattle this this one moves every year and i won housing for gsa next year at a s resort and spa wow yeah <laughs> so how, how did you do that <laughs> well so it was funny because they had a seattle booth like in the exhibit hall like the city of seattle had a booth because that's where we're going next year and so i signed up and i won Wow. Uh-huh. Uh, I got an email yesterday. It was very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if you can top that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't think so. I am, I am still in State College, but when this show airs, I will be on my way to New York City, actually. Oh, well, that's not as exciting as Denver, but okay. <laughs> no, it's not. But I am heading up there for the World Maker Fair, which is going to occur over the weekend. Have you been to that before? I have not. I have not actually been to a Maker Fair before, much less the World Maker Fair. And yeah. it, it's in my neck of the woods right now. So it's just uh, about a four-hour drive up there for me. I am so we'll be going up there this weekend. I'm super excited to hear how that goes. Because um, you hear about this in the news. This is kind of a big deal. Yeah, this may end up being next week's show. We'll see. We might yeah. have two conference shows in a row. <laughs> well, that's what we get for being conference people, I guess. <laughs> so I guess that this week we thought it'd be fun to talk about some of the stuff that you were seeing at GSA, since this is where a lot of the new and cool geological science gets brought out. So what's what's the conference been like this year? Well, so this is the main conference for geology, really. I mean, there's obviously lots of crossover. We talk about this on the show. You know, we both frequent the American Geophysical Union Conference. And then, as, as you just pointed out, there's lots of tiny little specialized conferences within our area. But this is really like the big geologist conference. Um, you can tell because everyone walks around in flannel, boots, and vests. <laughs> And <laughs> yep, I'm not kidding. <laughs> like, <laughs> and sandals, or are they in the hiking boots this time of year? Hiking boots this time of year, but there are still a fair amount of chacos around. That's true. That okay, true. Yeah, yeah, I would expect you said boots and vests, but there should be sandals in there somewhere. <laughs> there so. are. Gosh, it's so funny. Uh, you can just see us all over Denver, which there are a lot of geologists in Denver anyway. Um, but it's full for pro four full program days, and this is the first time I've ever stayed like from beginning to end. And so that's why it's been exhausting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, AGU is completely draining. It's five days. Four days, after four days, you're pretty much done anyway. Oh, so. <laughs> oh yes, yes, absolutely. I will say there's probably some brewery tours in the future tonight. But uh, 
<laughs> anyway, um, I thought there's a lot of cool talks, and because I wasn't presenting this year, I took this year to say, I'm just going to go to talks that are interesting, like not talks that I have to go to. And I listened to some neat stuff that I never would have really thought about before. Um, so I figured we could talk about some of them. So it's kind of like doing Fun Paper Friday, but maybe not as wacky. Yes, yeah. There, <laughs> I will say there were some pretty wacky uh, both titles of talks and also session titles. I don't know why. They were all hilarious this year. One today ended with a slide, and it said, any questions? And it had these two microbes <laughs> sitting at a table drinking water and farting methane. That was actually a drawing on a scientific talk today all right <laughs> yeah exactly um but that's uh, leads into one of the best ones i thought which was titled mind the gaps <laughs> exactly um and it was talking about this was a sedimentology talk and it was talking about that in rivers you know what are some of the bed forms that you see in rivers well, so you would see, like, the ripples, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. those are little. Yeah. Yeah, you would see cross-bedding, right? Well, it kind of has to do with cross-bedding. So on a, you see cross-bedding on these big things called bars, right? So right. if you live near a river, if you've flown over a river, you see those big bars, and they migrate through the river. They don't stand still. And the cross-bedding is what gets saved in the rock record. So the stuff in... The rivers is just sediment, and the stuff that we see in the rock record for ancient rivers is stuff like crossbeds. And so what we usually do is say most bars are close to the water surface, and therefore if we measure the height of these ancient crossbeds, we can say how deep a river a long time ago was. Okay. Yeah, seems like a good thing, right? But this is mind the gaps. This is what he's talking about, <laughs> is the gap between the top of the bar and the actual river surface is much more in some river systems than we knew so whereas before we'd say hey there's a rock let's measure that cross bed okay it's 10 feet well the river that it was in was approximately 10 feet deep but looking at the missouri river today some bars only represent like 50 percent of the river depth so that's pretty different wow that is uh yeah <laughs> it's uh kind of challenges a lot of the assumptions that we hold about what gets actually preserved in the rocks and hence the title mind the gaps because what you're reporting on may not be representative of the actual system um so that was pretty interesting and there was a lot of yeah a lot of satellite data in that talk you would have really liked that yeah i was wondering how they did that so is this is it all remote sensing um, no, they actually went out and they sort of ground truthed much of the remote sensing, um, which was neat because, you know, they would look at river color and you could say, okay, well, this looks a little lighter. So that's probably a bar. We assume it's within two inches of the river surface. And depending on the actual substrate and other stuff in the water and water conditions, that assumption could be wrong too. So they did a lot of ground truthing to go with their remote sensing. So is there any way to get around this when you're looking at crossbeds and measuring them? Or not are yet. we just <laughs> left? Nope. Yeah, yeah not yet. Um, so they looked at the Missouri River system, which is pretty big, but obviously they just looked in one area. And I think it's sort of a reminder to say, hey, maybe we should look at this in a bunch of different river systems, like maybe smaller ones and bigger ones, and see see what it looks like. I think 
we left it with, it's a good assumption. It was only a small number of bars that represented only 50% of the depth. So, you know. It's well, a, hey, it's less than an order of magnitude, right? Exactly. <laughs> it's good enough for government work. <laughs> Which is what a lot of geology is. Amen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, so that sounds like a fun one. So I, I assume that you tended more towards the sedimentary type talks i mean i really did i couldn't help it um (laughs) that is what i'm interested in so that was a lot of what i looked at um so that last talk was about paleo river depth but then i wandered into a talk about paleo altimetry paleo altimetry okay so you're trying to figure out how far above sea level you were right. in the past exactly and so this is really cool um it was focused in the western part of the u.s and they were looking at some of the mountain ranges in the Sierra Nevadas and trying to determine by using isotopes how tall these mountains are, which to me, I couldn't see the connection at all. Um, And it was actually really neat because I guess that you can use oxygen isotopes as a proxy for rainfall. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it has to do with, you know... (laughs) As the, you get ice in the oceans and it preferentially freezes a certain oxygen isotope and the other isotopes left in the seawater, that isotope gets evaporated into the clouds and then precipitates. So now you have an enhancement of that isotope that gets recorded in the actual sediments. And as these atmospheric circulations move around mountain ranges, which we've talked about before in the show, um, right. Where they where they actually start to precipitate out, the actual oxygen isotopes will change. So as you lose precipitation, your oxygen isotopes change, and feasibly you can tell on which side of the mountains you were on, the ancient Stoss or Lee slope, based on these oxygen isotopes. I don't know a lot about it. It looked really neat. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing what they can do with the isotope work. Oh. But... Since neither of us are geochemists. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Not even close. Um, What was so cool about it, though, was that you kind of have to have an idea about your atmospheric circulation before you can even start to interpret this data because you have to know if you're on the Stoss or the Lee side of the mountains because, as we've talked about, you know, rainfall looks different um, if you're on the orographic lift side or if you're on the rain shadow side. And so you had to know that, but you could also look at oxygen isotope data and sort of divine that as well and say, oh, we've got this big model that just says weather comes in from the west and that's it. <laughs> but by looking at the rocks, you can actually say, well, it looks like we might have had some blocking from this east-west mountain range and stuff like that. So it seemed like it had a lot of cool potential. Yeah, really cool. Yeah. Um, so another nice connection between meteorology and geoscience. I, I know. I was very excited about that talk. Um, there was also another one about lightning struck sand that I didn't make it to, which made me sad because that was a that was a good meteorology geology talk too. Um, yeah, especially since you've done some fulgurite work. I have. I've looked at the magnetics of fulgurites and worked out backwards to figure out the uh, voltage of the lightning that created them. It was fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's see. What else did I do? This isn't really a, a very paleomagnetic heavy meeting. AGU is kind of where paleomagnetists reside, but there were a few talks here, um, and they were very geology-related. A lot of paleomagnetism is very rock physics-related, 
So it's fun to see more geology uses, which is kind of what I do in terms of paleomagnetism. Yeah. So how many paleomagnetists come to this meeting roughly, do you think? Uh, some years we get a bunch if we try to put together a session. So people that don't know sort of how meetings work, um, it's the scientific community that comes together and says, this is what we want to talk about. And then the organizing body puts us all together into little sessions. And so some years we've had quite a few people in the community come, you know, very big names. And then most years not. Um, so it was about, there was a, a fair amount of us here this year. Uh, we talked about speleothems and magnetization and speleothems. That was cool. Now, that's a word I remember, <laughs> but that's about it. <laughs> um, well, you should, John, because you love caving. Um, so speleothems are cave deposits. Ah, okay. Yeah. There we go. Uh-huh. And they get deposited there by water. And these stalagmites, well, they were specifically looking at stalagmites um, and stalactites, they have a 100 to 200 micron film of water on them, basically at all times, in a growing cave system. And because there's water, it's dissolved stuff from the places it came through, and it precipitates these cool calcite speleothems. But not only does it do that, as it grows, it's recording the magnetic data of the environment it's growing in. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so. But that, I mean, that's really, you would have to take a really small sample. Normally the cores for paleomag are pretty large. Right. So you use um, a thing that we call a U-channel magnetometer. And so it can do really sort of fine, fine sampling of these tiny, you know, millimeter or less areas. And what's so neat about it is that usually in the sedimentary record, we can record polarity shifts. Those are big scale things, right? Thousands to millions of years. Right. But with these speleothems that are constantly growing, you can record cooler things in the magnetic field called like excursions. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. So something where we were gonna flip the magnetic field, but it didn't quite make it there. Or where it flips for a short amount of time, like 500 years versus the thousands that it normally is, or even smaller time scales. So they were using that in conjunction with radiometric dating to make this really fine scale magnetic polarity chart. It was awesome. Wow. Yeah. So there's actually a paper that came out this week. I think it was in the Bulletin of the Seismological Society mm -hmm. where they were using stalactites as uh, paleo earthquake indicators by trying to time when different sets of them broke off in a cave. Ooh, that due to the is shaking. cool. Yeah, it was a really neat paper. Uh -huh. And I kind of saw it and read the abstract and said, hmm, that's a cool idea. But then when you started mentioning this, it made me think of it again. That is super neat. We should definitely talk about that. Yeah. Um, that's cool. Um, so were there any kind of themes? That, I know sometimes at AGU at least in geophysics, you're like, oh, everybody's doing tomography this year. Or <laughs> well, were there anything that, you know, oh, everybody's looking at this this year? So there's always, I feel like there's always a session on this. Um, the Colorado River and the evolution of the Colorado River system is a huge debate in geology. And so every year there's a big session, and this year is no different, except for <laughs> the first Colorado <laughs> River session was 
Sunday morning, and the last one was Wednesday afternoon. So I thought that was pretty funny that they spread them <laughs> all the way apart. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the Colorado, why, why it's a thing is that we don't know when the Colorado River carved the Grand Canyon, essentially. That's still a big debate. There's a lot of really big experts that take different sides, and the best we've gotten it down to still is somewhere around 10 to 6 million years. Which is not that narrow of a range for something that's not that old. Uh, exactly, right. So just by all kinds of sampling bias, which we will talk about, you know, I'm sure on many shows to come, uh, stuff that's geologically younger, we should have a lot of data for those problems and we just can't come to a consensus on this um they use all kinds of things to attack this problem just simple stratigraphic uh, correlations and there's a lot of thermal modeling to determine the cooling rates of the area because the colorado plateau is rising up and the colorado river is cutting down so how fast is it rising when did it start that's how we have something like the grand canyon and so as you rise up, you're going to cool off, right? That's what happens. Um, right. And so you can look at the rocks and try to tell when there was, like, increased cooling. And so maybe that's when uplift started. Uh, that was a really neat one I, that I went to. And that came up with a, about 6.3, I think, was his 5.8 to 6.3 million years. And there are a lot of talks that sort of came to around that conclusion. And so I think we're actually getting closer to saying it's around six million years. That's what I gathered anyway. You can send your hate mail to <laughs> <laughs> to Shannon on that one. Why? <laughs> um, so that that's a thing, but it's not only the that part of the Colorado River, but also the lower part of the Colorado River is a big issue too. <laughs> Because we don't know what the paleo environment is, or was, um, when it started to go out into the Salton Sea. And so there's a big question about whether it was an estuary, or whether the whole lower Colorado was a series of what we call spill and fill lakes. I think that was kind of So you fill up, and then you overtop. Yep. And then you just keep going. Yeah. (laughs) And so you can make these lakes with glaciers. We've talked about some of the places in the Western U.S. where this has happened. Um, So that was kind of neat, too. That's just a big argument. But what's nice is it's not a very contentious argument, I feel like. So actually listening to the talks were, it was nice. Because everyone was like, they've done really good work. Here's my idea. So that was Right. Yeah. So that was kind of, you know, that was really neat. Um, That was a big one. There's always a lot of space stuff here. Those are always super fun. Well, and we love space. (laughs) It's really big. Um, (laughs) So New Horizons, obviously, was a huge topic, which was really cool. I remember being at the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference when the first Cassini photos came out, and that was really neat. And, I mean, everyone's seen the New Horizons, but this was sort of the first, you know, really big, like, we've had time to geologically map stuff. And we talked about Tholins again. I don't know if you remember us talking about that on the show. Uh, Barely. (laughs) That was a while back. That was the show that we recorded in, uh, I was in the hallway of IU, I think. (laughs) (laughs) So it should be memorable. Um, So those are those weird little, there's some kind of hydrocarbon. And they show up a different color 
in the pictures of Sharon, the moon of Pluto. And yes, that's how you pronounce that moon. I'm sure I'll get hate mail about that too. Um, (laughs) It's named after the guy's wife. That's why it's pronounced Sharon, but it's spelled like Karen because it's a mythological person. Anyway, so these (laughs) these tholins are these weird sort of hydrocarbon things. They show up red and they're actually mapping based on where they are. So that was kind of neat, I thought. Yeah, and these were, wasn't it something in the atmosphere where there was a breakdown and... Yeah. Yeah. It's something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is starting to ring a bell. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, but, the- uh, but yeah, so I expected it to be a lot of New Horizons stuff there. That's yeah. exciting. And then I guess the next big place that we expect to see that is the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference... Yes. Uh, later on, right? Down right. in the woodlands. Exactly. And there was a lot of people that were um, talking about, hey, we're going to, you know, take this even further here. I saw a cool talk about the new Europa mission, and there was like a lot of applause in that talk. So that was really neat. Um, everything they're going to do on that mission and what they're planning for the, for the science. And that was fun. Um, but the coolest one, because I never would have thought of this, and the guy that gave it was super neat was about Helene. Do you know where that is? Okay. So that is around Saturn, I think? Yes. (laughs) Um, Right. So it's a moon of Saturn, and we have really good pictures of it from Cassini. And why it was cool was it has these strange ridges on it, and they look like mass-wasting deposits. But there's a problem with why they just can't say these are mass-wasting deposits. And, speak- and what's the problem? Yeah, so I, that's what I thought. I was like, okay, that's what that looks like. What's the problem? Well, they can tell the angle of these ridges because they have pictures from all different sides, and they're lower than the angle of repose of any known substance. Okay, so they're lower than the angle of repose, so they should be stable, not mass-wasting. Exactly. Exactly. So, hmm, right? This guy did some modeling... And he modeled the surface of Helene as a non-Newtonian surface, which he called a Bingham material. And what was yeah? So that's that's more in the realm of mechanics. Yeah, uh, yeah. I thought you might. Now be you're speaking my language. So <laughs> I threw this one out here for you. So you'd actually talk during the show. <laughs> uh, yeah. So Bingham materials are viscoplastic. Okay. So they're rigid, kind of like a plastic. At low stresses, but at high stresses, they become a viscous fluid. All right. And uh. <laughs> you have a Bingham material in your kitchen. <gasps> what is it? Mayo. That's gross. <laughs> <laughs> well, think about it. You, you can, if yeah, you, you have a small it. piece of mayonnaise, you can cut it. Mm-hmm. You sure can. But if, but if you put it under any kind of stress, it squirts out like a viscous fluid. That's great. So the moon is made of cheese and Helene is made of mayo. Mayo. He did not. Now say we just that. need some ham and bread. Exactly. It's somewhere out there. <laughs> oh man, he did not say that. Oh, what was so neat about the modeling though is that when he modeled it as a Bingham material, it the model looked exactly like the pictures from Helene. Oh, cool. Yeah. And so it was really neat because he was basically getting drug off the stage because he was talking way over his time. And but it was just he ended with like, <laughs> "What could this moon be?" You know, but apparently it could be mayonnaise. <laughs> yeah, apparently. Uh. <laughs> so that I mean that was only a fraction of the talks that I saw, but they were worth mentioning. I thought because they were some of 
some really interesting things that you know made me think and as all conferences do got me really excited about going back to work <laughs> right so now you are will be back to teaching and uh, sending grad students off to the lab right yes that is exactly what i will be doing <laughs> <laughs> um but since i was gone i unfortunately left the fun paper in your hands and man you didn't even have to work for this one though somebody sent it in right <laughs> yeah so listener steve sent this in oh, steve. and uh <laughs> Let me tell you, this is a find. Uh, I'm just going to read the title and let this sink in for a second. It's The Ethics of Human-Chicken Relationships in Video Games, The Origins of the Digital Chicken. Um, I have to say right off the bat, I think these are my favorite figures of any any paper we've read yes. so far. Well, and when Steve sent this to me and I read the title, I first said, what? Because <laughs> I don't really play video games. Yeah, me neither. So <laughs> uh, so I had to ask some people about this. And sure enough, if you take this paper with its associated figures into any college campus and ask somebody if they recognize the figures, <laughs> they'll instantly be like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's from this video game something. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, for example, Fable was the one that got recognized by a few folks in my lab. Oh, really? And Yeah, and apparently there is this thing in video games where a lot of times if you see a chicken, you can, for no reason, beat it up or <laughs> uh, do all kinds of things to it, actually. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes they are important in the game, but also some games like Fable, they're there so you can just kick the chicken be mean to them <laughs> um, yeah <laughs> so i will <laughs> so this paper did a good job and this is by uh father gill and flick by the way um and it did a good job talking about the role of chickens in ch human chicken relations in the past <laughs> there's a pretty good pretty good line in here the bounteous gifts of the chicken to past humanity are not limited to flesh and fun <laughs> the fun is in quotation marks if you couldn't tell <laughs> yeah um it was weird there was a lot of really good background about chickens being sacred obviously chickens as food that's a big deal um and yeah chickens as beating punching bags for real not just in video games yeah and there were some really surprising statistics in here i thought <laughs> About so chickens have apparently uh, they were domesticated by the sixth millennium BC in yeah. Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. That surprised me. And they're one of the most common domesticated animals. And somewhere in here, it has exactly how many tons of chicken oh, that we consume gross. a year. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't like that at all. It was. It was a lot. Um, yes it was we'll <laughs> we'll find it as we as we go through here uh -huh. oh. but <laughs> but i did think it was amazing how much detail there was and how much research has been done on the relation of chickens and humans uh yes yeah because there are quite a few uh there's a quite a few um people cited in here too <laughs> yeah and there are some citations uh talking about like you said, chickens in religion. There's some biblical references in here. But section 3.2 has the best section name of anything 
that I've ever seen in a paper. Uh, I mean, the sacred chicken is pretty good, too, but I guess you're right. 3.2 is well, pretty good. <laughs> it's a direct quote from Monty Python, The Search for the Holy Grail. Uh-huh. Section 3.2 is the violence inherent in, this, inherent in the system. <laughs> this is why I love reading papers by British authors. <laughs> right. So the violence inherent in the system talks about how chickens have, like you said, kind of ended up as punching bags or we fought them against each other. Uh, it's just not been necessarily a good thing for them. And also they brought up in here how we use chickens as a metaphor. You know, you can say, well, you're a chicken. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then we also have a lot of phrases where we have the chickens as being brave. Right. So being cocky or cocksure. Right. Yeah. I thought, yeah, that was that was an interesting dichotomy that we give to this poor little guy. Right. I say poor little guy, but chickens are mean, man. Like, I used to have a rooster, and he was not friendly. Well, and that's something that they actually complained about in here, too, (laughs) is, you know, you said poor little guy, but chickens are sexually dimorphic, and that's not what is depicted in video games often. Uh, Yeah, that was really interesting, too, um, which I think we probably all all have a problem with especially little chickens though they're hard to tell them apart so but yeah um you say rooster or cock and you're actually looking at a hen and no one seems to know the difference but it's kind of true for cows and heifers too i think we've gone away from agrarian society enough that we don't understand those differences you know that that could be uh so let's see oh yeah here to uh, to chicken out they have this wonderful uh, the French phrase translating to wet hen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of in here. That was pretty and, and apparently the chicken has cycled through these different phases uh, throughout its domestication. But in their methodology, they used mostly Google searches of video game forums. And they constrained their search to be between the 80s and up to 2015. And they found 53 video games that have chickens in them. Uh, I'm actually surprised at that. I would have thought it would have been a lot more. Oh, really? Yeah. I was surprised that it was that high. <laughs> um, I just I remember that Chicken Crossing the Road video game from ages ago on the Atari. It was the best. <laughs> I might have dated myself a little bit there. Um, yeah. Uh, I didn't know a lot of these games at all. I've obviously heard of World of Warcraft and stuff, but I'm not a big gamer either, so that um, escaped me and I don't think I'd ever play this game because of the macho man chicken character he's very disturbing looking in um, Skyrim is that how you say that one yeah I've heard a lot about this game actually okay all right and apparently I think it was in Skyrim that they said in here where if you commit a crime as your character (laughs) the chickens will be witnesses and you will be arrested so you have to kill any chickens that saw you commit the crime as well i thought that was awesome that has to go down in the positive category for depictions of chickens in a video game i think right well except then you have to kill them well that's not so good um well so saying that this is something i thought about because they talk a lot about how violent people were towards chickens especially in britain like there were a lot of sort of festivals surrounding killing chickens or cockfighting. And so to me, I mean, they've transferred it now to this digital realm instead of doing it for real. So they come up with a lot of ethical arguments about how we can be better and how we shouldn't do that. But I think that's kind of an interesting 
point to talk about, well, do you want to do it for real or digitally or so I thought a lot about that when I was reading this. Or do you want to do it at all? Yeah, right, exactly. Exactly. I mean, it, that's the argument, I guess. Because there are some uh, groups and some studies that will say that violence to animals leads to further violence. Right. And, and there are also some studies that say it makes no difference. Right. And some studies that say, well, it prevents it because you're digitally doing it instead of actually doing it. Um, so that was that was an interesting point that this paper tried to tackle the ethicalness of chicken portrayals in this video games. Right. And there's, uh, you know, PETA has said that we should not uh, be doing this in video games at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually have no idea where to stand on this. It's a kind of a difficult subject, really. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, and you know, we're saying, well, people are doing this digitally, not in real life. But they point out that not too long ago, there was a, uh, a film that was released to the public that they say caused a furor that was a, a supplier for KFC that was being very mean to their chickens. They were stomping them and all kinds of stuff. Mm, yeah, that's right. I forgot about that part. Um, and this is, it's interesting because when I, when I read this and Steve sent it, I didn't really think that there would be an ethical part. So it's kind of a, it's kind of interesting as well as being funny and quirky, but it leaves you thinking a lot too. Yeah. And they said, you know, one of the best ways that this could be, uh, the chickens could be in video games is in like farming simulator video games. <laughs> yeah. And so how you could, um, so they suggest this, but I know that this is probably true for some video games, you know, that if you feed your chickens better or organically, they get that you grow more and, you know, you get more eggs and stuff. And I know that is present in some children's games, at least that I've played, um, maybe not necessarily on the computer, but so I think that lesson is being taught. Um, it's interesting that they pointed out for yeah. video game purposes too. There are some games they point out that have like magic chickens or you can find an egg and, <laughs> or a chicken and it will become very useful to you. Or one of the games even had a chicken hack. Right. Uh, in one of the games, you can turn the main character in Grand Theft Auto, uh, which is what it sounds like where you basically drive around running over people. Yeah. In stolen cars, but you can make the main character into a chicken. Right. And they, they actually said that this had a lot to do with, you know, chicken as a masculine creation and this whole, you know, cocksure or cocky attitude versus a wet hen sort of attitude. So that was that was sort of an interesting societal commentary as well. Even though I know Grand Theft Auto has been the <laughs> subject of numerous psychological studies, so... And ethical and everything, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so looking down at the video game list, some of these video game names are really great. Banjo-Tooie. <laughs> uh, uh, what was like Mac the Chicken? Was Yeah, Mort the Chicken. That was one of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Mort the Chicken. And that was, uh, a, that was an entirely chicken protagonist one. Mort the Chicken was. <laughs> Guacamole. <laughs> I wasn't even going to try to say that one um <laughs> that's just my guess uh mm-hmm. yeah i mean orcs some, must die billy hatcher and the giant egg <laughs> <laughs> yeah some of these are pretty great yep yeah that was a that was a really interesting uh interesting paper steve <laughs> yeah and this one is out there so i will have a link in the show notes you can go 
click on it, download your very own copy, and look at these fig figures of, for example, figure three, Fat Chocobo, <laughs> which is this giant chick that's running around. That's my favorite one, obviously. Yep. <laughs> well, if, if you have ideas for a fun paper or for something you'd like to hear us talk about we've got a couple of listener suggested shows queued up and we're pretty excited about those mm -hmm. but we're always looking for more so you can get a hold of us through a multitude of ways shannon how can they do it <laughs> well they can always email us show at don'tpanicgeocast.com and we're starting to get more emails so john will get to your email i promise <laughs> <laughs> and I'll CC you on the reply. Right, exactly. So um, I will help out with that. So please send us that. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at geo underscore Lehman is John. I'm at Shannon Doolin. And together we're at Don't Panic Geo. And although I haven't been in the um, Slack hangout, uh, swung.rocks um, in our Don't Panic chat room this week, I'm looking forward to vegging out there next week. So come join us there. Yes, we've had some pretty fun discussions there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employees.